what we don't realize is that when you get the spotlight on you, whether you want it or not, you have to be mentally prepared for it. You're listening to Social Misfit. Mm. Yeah, she's coming in hot. She's excited. What's what's going on, Misfits? I can't even contain myself. I am so excited to be taping today. Oh my gosh, I have so much to talk about. Really, I am invigorated, okay? So like, if you tuned in last week, you heard how I was like a little bit down in the dumps, feeling my biochemistry fucking with my head and emotions, but I am back and I am feeling good and I am recharged, y'all. Like, I... Don't know what it is, but I do know what it is. Okay. I already said this. If you follow me on Instagram, I put it in my stories. We are talking about the Andy Warhol diaries on Netflix. Okay. So prepare yourself. Okay. Prepare to be sick of me because I'm about to go deep into this motherfucking documentary on in a myriad of levels. Okay. But before I get into that, I just wanted to see how you're doing today. How, how is your Monday treating you? Are you prepared for this week? Uh, are you finding your peace, finding your joy? Are you protecting yourself from all of the terrible things that's going on? in the world. This is going to be an episode that is devoid of war and politics. We are talking about art and culture because it's something that we do not appreciate anymore because of social media and microwave technology. Like everybody wants everything to be so quick, so fast right now, immediate. And there are some benefits to that, but there's also some downsides to that. And we're going to talk about all of that today because I've been like stewing. I have been like sitting in this and just like prepared to just unleash all of my thoughts. I've been telling everybody that I know to watch the Andy Warhol diaries. And some people like, Oh, this shit is boring. Like then you gotta, you gotta hear me. And then if you try to watch it and it wasn't really speaking to you, watch it again after this podcast. Okay. But before I get into that, so just a little update on myself. Um, and I think also this probably had to do with why I was like, kind of like melancholy last, last week. I started doing stand up again. And I hate to say it like I wasn't doing stand up, but I wasn't doing stand up. And it wasn't a conscious thing, but you know, with the pandemic, not being able to perform, moving to LA, being like, I kind of was in shutdown quarantine for like longer than a lot of people because I was in shutdown pretty much like most of like from March to December of 2020 in New York. And then I moved to LA in December of 2020. And then it was that like kind of like the peak of their quarantine of their numbers were being really high in December. So I had an extended another six months of sitting in the house. So like a year and a half and I'm not bragging, but it definitely got me out of the mix because I was here in LA and then like all my friends in New York were like performing standup because it was nice outside and they doing rooftops and street corners and parks and they were just like getting it where they got it in. And then here they were doing that as well. But I wasn't really into the scene yet because I moved here when everything was shut down. And then I did a handful of shows here and there when it felt like, you know, things were like settling down, like when we had that first fake out. And then the block got hot again. And I was like, oh, yeah, I need to get my my vaccination. So I got vaxxed and then all of that other stuff happened. And then I started working. So I couldn't really perform because now I was working and my hours are crazy. So I haven't really performed, performed like consistently since March 15th of 2020. And I remember that date. And I know I said last week, I don't remember dates, 
But that date was etched into my head because that is when I was at the comedy cellar. We were sitting at the table. We were talking about it was a Sunday. So the city was already already a little quiet, but it was even more quiet because we were just starting to get the rumblings of like the COVID like like, oh, we think this shit is might be really real. Like things might be really shutting down. And when things really were shutting down, it was like two days later and I haven't really performed like that. So I've done little shows here and there, but I wasn't really in my groove. And I still was like trying to like figure out how do I talk about things that's going on? And I don't really feel good talking about like trying to make light of shit because people are dying like for real. And so this past week I was able to perform. Um, I did the convention I talked told you guys about. I did the Wild on Planners. And so that was like my first toe back in the pool, right? And did my little toe back in the pool. And it was a convention. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and so the content was with some parameters because I'm not going to like go balls to the wall deep. But it was fun, right? It was a nice kiki. That was like a little, little appetizer, a little wet my palate. And then this past Thursday, a friend to the show and friend of real life, Zainab Johnson, um, was doing her hour and she asked if I would feature. So I did 20 minutes and that was like no, no um, prepared material, like no jokes. Like I don't have jokes right now. I just went on there and I just was talking about like stuff I'd be thinking about, stuff that's like rattling around in my head, ideas for jokes or things that I want to just like get out there and see how to make it funny. And I talked about a bunch of shit like I was all over the place, but it kind of made sense. And, you know, I'm listening back to the tapes and it's just pretty much like I'm thinking of these early sets back out there as just like lumps of clay. Like I'm just going on stage with a lump of clay and I'm starting to mold it. And like over the next you know, couple months throughout the rest of this year, I'm just going to be like peeling away at these lumps of clay until I find like this fucking like amazing sculpture. Um, and then I'll decide what I want to do with that amazing sculpture. If I'm going to record another album or, you know, aim for a special. So I'm excited to get back on stage and just like talk and definitely like my confidence is in a different place. Like my train of thought is in a different place. Like the way I view things, I'm older, I've moved, like so many things have happened in my life. and and it really allows me to just take inventory of where I am. And I think that's something that everybody needs to do. Um, and if you don't, you should maybe take a pause and like reassess things and maybe approach things differently, especially if you have like a, a vision or a goal or a dream in mind, because a lot of times I think we get so like stuck in the weeds of it. Right. You know? And so like when it came, when it came to me and stand up comedy, I was the point when the pandemic started, I was really at like, an impasse because I felt like I'm funny. People tell me I'm funny. I perform all over the country. You know, I can hold my own in any setting and I feel like I'm not being seen. And this is me just being honest. It's not an ego thing. This is just like, if you're, you know, in stand up, I was in stand up comedy for 10 years at the time and I'm seeing people getting things and getting on lists and getting showcases and doing this thing. And I did the tonight show with Jimmy Fallon and nothing happened, even though people say, Oh, this is so big. Nothing changed in my career. I still couldn't get booked at comedy clubs and I'm still feeling like, okay, well now you start to hear the thing of like, okay, well, you know what it is. It's like, you're a black woman. They only let so many black women make it, which is unfair to have that conversation still in this day and age just because it's like why we keep falling into that trap and I know that thing we do when you are a black person it 
it shows itself in every aspect of life where you're constantly saying, well, you know, they only do this because, and we end up editing ourselves in, in minimizing ourselves or beating ourselves down because we're trying to get into that one slot where we know that they only let one person. And so that is problematic, right? Because we have to stop um, falling into this trap of believing that it can only be one. And it, it may only be one in that system, but why do you want to keep trying to get into that system, right? It's like, you know, that seat at the table is like, that table is never for you. They're going to give you the seat. It's going to be one seat and they're going to kick you out and let the next person come in when they're ready to change their motherfucking scenery and say, we got a new person of color at the table. And so now you out and now you got to start from scratch because you abandon your grassroots efforts or the people who was really fucking with you, like your core fan base, because you try to be, you know, try to one time them and be like, oh, I'm big. I'm a big shot now. I got my seat at the table. And then so that group of people who was with you from day one stopped fucking with you because they're like, oh, you're not even talking to us no more because you over there with the other people. And then when you want to come back, then you got to come back groveling and begging and pleading or doing motherfucking dances on TikTok being like, oh, I'm black again. I'm with y'all. I'm with the people. And I'm saying that that's like a, a thinly veiled uh, drag of some black celebrities that we've seen now all of a sudden start kicking up their blackness extra hard now that the establishment ain't fucking with them no more on Instagram posing and shit, letting us know how black they are, letting us know that they down for the cause, letting us know that they eat fried chicken. Like you see them, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know, you've seen them. If you've, if you've been on social media lately and you see a black celebrity who was uh, a lister many years ago and now all of a sudden they on Instagram being like what's up y'all how we doing we kicking it you know I'm black I love being black I love my people and you like oh yeah white people ain't fuck with you no more you can't get no roles you can't get no roles ain't nobody giving you no budget now you over here kicking it with us because you came back home you came back home to nestle with the colored people because you should have never abandoned us because we knew that them people was going to kick you out when they got tired when a new it black person a new Spanish person was going to come around and push your old ass out so now you back at square one. So I feel like we do that a lot where we're still trying to get that one seat at the table and we know how it ends because we see it. And so now it's like I felt when it came to my stand up comedy career that I was like, well, when are they going to see me? When are they going to acknowledge me? When are they going to understand? When are they going to see? And thank, thankfully, I was able to take the time, the downtime during the pandemic, sitting, sitting home basically for two years, doing all my stuff online and really finding myself, really finding my audience. Um, and I want to thank all of you who listen to this podcast, who DM me and tell me that you're glad that I'm doing a podcast again. All the people who were watching Chloe Across America, like I don't take that for granted at all. You definitely helped reaffirm me when it came to my voice and my point of view and the things and how I approach things and being okay with being a little bit ghetto and nerdy and, you know, being studious and researching and all like just like being myself. Like I don't have to put on airs about who I am. And you guys get me, you get me. And I appreciate that. And so for me, it's kind of like now that I don't have to rely on trying to grab that one seat at the table because I can talk directly to the people that I want to talk to, it frees me up. And so now when I'm on stage this past week, I'm not trying to 
be like anybody else. And not to say I was, but I'm not trying to be like that comedian who's like, set up punchline jokes, set up punchline, punchline, set up. Like, I'm just having a conversation. And I realize, and this is me trusting myself, I realize that I can hold a conversation, which is what I've been doing. I've been doing holding, I've been doing podcasts. I've been doing the YouTube shows and I can make anything relatable and funny especially complex conversations. Like I was talking last week on stage about inflation, like inflation, talking about inflation, had them cracking up, dying about inflation um, because I broke it down in such a way that, you know, makes sense. And I'm not going to tell you how I did it because now I'm going to definitely use it as a joke. And so I'm going to like craft it and make it better. So you end up hearing it at some point, but this is the process, right? You get on stage, you take your big old ball of clay and you start, you know, carving away at it. So I'm really excited to get back on stage. So hopefully you guys will be seeing me soon in a city near you because I'm going to, I'm going to get back out there. I'm definitely going to get back out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm still going to be writing in in Hollywood, writing and producing and all that stuff, but I'm definitely going to make, you know, stand up. I cannot, as Monroe Martin scolded me, I cannot forget what got me here, right? And so stand-up got me here in this position and got me to meet the people who bring me on and help write and punch up shit. And so I am, I, I'm staying true to my roots. I'm not going to all of a sudden go too far left and then come back. Like I said, those people do in like 10 years of being like, remember me? Cause I'm a comic. And you be like, Nigga, we do not remember you being a comic. That's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother side conversation. So isn't that funny when you, people, people are like TV stars, movie stars. And then they come out when, you know, when they show get canceled or that movie flopped and all of a sudden like, you know, cause I'm a stand up, you know, cause stand up is where I started and I'm a true stand up. It's like, we haven't seen you on stage in 10 years, sir, or ma'am. All of a sudden, you would stand up again? Like, I guess. And then, of course, they, you know, get to be on all the shows because they have that star quality. But then you sitting there watching them being like, this shit is not funny. This shit, get, get him an audition a- ASAP. Get him back on stage, on screen, because the stage ain't it. We, we have moved past this. Um. So, yeah, so I'm excited. I'm excited to get back and stand up. That's where I'm at right now. And, um, you know, especially after how I was feeling last week, really heavy, really down with all the weight of the world and all that stuff. I made a conscious decision. I took Instagram off my phone. Yes, y'all. I took Instagram off my phone. I already took Twitter off my phone, like, after Trump lost. Like, when we got President Joe Biden, I was like, oh, I don't have to be on Twitter every day to, like, you know, keep in, keep in a vigil uh, for democracy, even though shit is still shaky. But y'all, yeah, that's on y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out. I'm tapped out. I mean, I'm so tapped out. I'm at the point now, I'm like, I might even actually register as an independent. And, and I say that because it's like, neither party is doing what they need to be doing in my opinion. And, and it's not enough for y'all to keep just getting black people to vote for Democrats. And then y'all turn around and renege. I, I'm seriously considering switching to becoming an independent because y'all not get these shackles off my feet. Okay. I cannot just be beholden to one political party and y'all not doing which I know, which I need to be doing. So that's what I'm thinking about politically. Um, so because I'm just like tired of all of the like politics and shit, you know, I love me a good cartoon. So I watched the Cuphead show on Netflix and apparently the Cuphead show is based on a video game, which is interesting. But what I enjoy about the thing is that it reminds me of like the Looney Tunes when I was a kid, but like updated for 2022, just the animation style of it. Also, it looks like they use like different types of graphics. So there's a lot of like three, not 3D, but like a lot of depth 
And it's, I can't really explain it, but like some of the scenes are really cool when you really watch it from if you like cartoons. And um, I also realized that it's one of those shows that's like kids could watch it, but there's also layers to it when you're an adult. You'd be like, oh, I see what y'all saying here. Like, oh, this is kind of funny. And it took me a while to like watch it because I would have it on and I'd be like, oh, what are they talking about? But then when I watched it again, I'm like, oh, okay, I see, I see the funny, I see the jokes because you really, you kind of really have to pay attention. And I wasn't really, I just had it on in the background, but then I watched it, like I would go back and be like, let me watch it again. Um, so I enjoy the Cuphead show. So if you want something that's light and funny and silly, the Cuphead show on Netflix. Um, also on Netflix, they have uh, Shrek 1 and Shrek 2. And then Shrek 3, for some reason, is on Hulu, but they have Shrek 4 on Netflix as well. So I watched Shrek 1 and 2, so funny still today and really a good watch, really a truly good watch. If you just want to like veg out and just find some funny shit and, and tune out from the world, watch Sh- Shrek 1 and 2 and then go over to Hulu. If you have a Hulu account, watch 3 and then come back to Netflix and watch Shrek 4. Um, I also want to watch, I didn't do it though, but I'm going to watch Toy Story 4 because it's so fucking funny. Like if you haven't seen Toy Story 4, please watch it. Um, you don't even kind of really have to watch the first ones to watch Toy Story 4. Like, you you get it. Like, Toy Story has been around enough. You know, the toys fucking talk when the kids is out the room. Like, that's basically it. But I just find it, like, simple, fun things that just, like, help me just chill out so that I don't, like, drive myself crazy. And so that's what I did. And I feel so much better. Um, which brings me to what got me so recharged and feeling so good about, like, my future as a comedian, as a creative person, and all around, it's like staying true to who you are and understanding the importance of like your artistry, whatever that is, your artistry, your passion. So this weekend I watched the Andy Warhol Diaries on Netflix. Now I had no expectations. I almost wasn't even going to watch it. Honestly, I did not see any promo for it. I know people were talking about it on social media, but I'm not really on social media at the moment. So I kind of just was like flipping. And then like, you know, the trailer started and the part of the trailer started and it grabbed me. And I was like, oh, let me just watch like one episode. Like I actually thought it was for some reason, I thought it was just like a movie, but it's like a six part episode series, limited series. And so I'm watching it and I, kind of knew who Andy Warhol was. I knew, I know from like an iconic standpoint, I knew who he was. Like I knew what he looked like because he was so bizarre in his appearance. He had this like stark white hair, which was a wig that always like stuck up some kind of crazy way and glasses and really thin and really pale. And I just knew him from like the Campbell soup guy. Like he would paint the Campbell soup can and it was all over the place. And then he did the Madonna, uh, not the Madonna, the Marilyn Monroe. Like, I just know some of his work. I can look at something and be like, oh, that's Andy Warhol. Um, Cause he did a lot of silk screening and um, silk screening. And so he would make these like posterized versions of photographs that he would take. And then he would like colorize them in a really like funky pop culture way. And so what was so interesting about watching this series is that we take a lot of things from granted, right? So I was judging Andy Warhol from where I am in life, right? Seeing him and being like, oh, that's not that different. But you got to understand that when he was doing these things, he was the only person doing these things. It wasn't like he saw somebody do it and he tried it. Like from his brain, from his mind, he created these 
concepts that were never done before in the art world and the art world hated him. They called him like a joke. He's not truly an artist. Like, you know, a lot of elitism in the art world, like just really, really shitting on him, you know, and he's a first generation child of immigrants. Um, You know, he grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was a factory town and moved to New York City with $50. And he was already talented as an artist. He'd already was a draw, you know, he could draw and he had sketches and that sort of stuff. So he got work as like an illustrator doing graphics for magazines and commercials, print ads. And so, but he wanted to be an artist artist. And so he invested in himself and he became an artist artist and he just did what he wanted to do, which was so liberating and freeing to see because now with social media and just the pressures of society, it's like everybody's doing what everybody else is doing, which this is a tangent, but it has to be said. I cannot stand this lip syncing culture. I hate it when I'm looking at a video and someone is saying something to the camera and then I'm like, wait, that's not their voice. Then I got to look down at the original audio and I click on that original audio thinking I'm going to see the original person. And it's just the Somebody ripped that audio from somebody else and they were just the first person to use it on Instagram. So it looks like it's their original audio and it's not. And then I'm trying to find, well, who's actually saying the things? A lot of times we don't even know who the original source is. We don't know who the original source is. And what that does is it wipes out creators, right? Because even if you don't consider yourself a creator, but you did something in it and it like sparked something, you created it, right? You don't get your credit. So now we are living in a creditless society where people can just move around, take in other people's intellectual property, benefit from it, get the views, get the ad revenue, get the sponsorship deal because you made a funny video using somebody else's audio or you made a funny video using somebody else's dance moves. Like we already know what's happening with the black creators on TikTok and how all the white people are still and their dance moves and they getting all these motherfucking lucrative deals and signing to agencies and TV roles and movies and all that shit. Stealing dances from black people, which is very much uh, akin to Elvis Presley stealing everything from motherfucking Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all the other black uh, rock and roll stars who he stole all his moves and his sounds from. So we've seen this before, right? And then you turn around and you call, you know, Elvis Presley the king. Well, the king is sitting on a throne that's stolen, but you don't want to give credit to the people that that inspired. And it's not even inspired that he legit stole from. Right. And so we're doing this all over again. And you think that it would be easier to like give the credits to the people because everything is digitally recorded, but it doesn't matter. And so I am so annoyed with this lip syncing culture because really what it does is it just it just homogenizes everything. It just makes everything the same. And so that's why it was so inspiring to see Andy Warhol create in a vacuum, right? Create in a space where people were like, what the fuck are you doing? That's dumb. It's crazy. Nobody's going to, you're going to be a flash in the pan. Like, you know, they have critics who are on record saying like, oh, Andy Warhol, it's like, whatever. Nobody cares about him. And, you know, when you think about the artist from, and also Andy Warhol started like in the 50s, his career was blossoming in the 60s. He managed to stay around in the 70s. He reinvented himself in the 80s. Like he died in 1987. 
But he was an artist for three decades, like a known artist who influenced, who was in the mainstream. And it wasn't a fluke. He fucking worked his ass off to do that. And that was the other thing that was so impressive about him and his story is that he had the fortitude to say, I'm going to archive and document everything that I do. So the diaries are based on his actual diary. But the way in which he went about recording his diary was so like crazy to me. He had a friend, a confidant, and she probably was on payroll. And she and him would talk every morning, like first thing in the morning, he would call her. She would press record on an audio recorder and he would tell her what he did the day before. Like woke up at this time, ate this thing, met this person. We talked about this. Like he was documenting his life and she would transcribe it and then send him pages every couple weeks and he would say, yeah, that's right. Or, you know, he would edit it. And then when he passed away, she published the book and they were his diaries from his mouth. Now, of course, when you think about a diary, I, you know, we call them journals now. I have a journal and I've kept journals throughout my entire life. I'm not necessarily super consistent in work and writing in them, but yeah, I, she has volumes. Okay. And that was one of the key things that I brought with me. It was interesting when I moved, I threw a lot of things away, but when I came across my journals, I was like, I'm going to keep this. And one thing about me is like, I don't look back. So I have these journals, but I don't read them. Like once I write in it, it's it. I'm not sitting back here cozying up with a nice glass of wine and being like, Ooh, what did I say in 1997? Like, I don't go back and read them at all. Like I just purge my thoughts and get it out there on the page. But what I also noticed, and the same thing I'm sure that Andy Warhol did, is that you craft your life when you write your journal. Some people just purge everything, but some people are meticulous in how they say things. Like, for example, if I'm writing about a person or like a lover, I don't say their name. I may give them a nickname or an initial. Um, if, you know, something happens and, and I, can, I can say it in a way where I know what it means. But like, if you just pick up my book, you're not going to be like, oh, wow, shit, she was doing this with this person and this happened. Oh, my goodness. Like, so. It was interesting because I know that his words were carefully picked when he wrote this diary, but it still showed a lot of his life and it left a lot of room for you to kind of like read between the lines. And there were certain things that he says, like, I, you know, this person told me not to write about them, so I'm not going to write about them. And then the editor of the diaries, the person that he confided in, in the book after he passed away, she would say, editors know this is what happened. Like he's not talking about it, but this is a key thing that happened. So for context, blah, blah, blah. And so Andy Warhol also, in addition to being an artist and also in, in addition to archiving every aspect of his life, um, he was into all media forms. He was in television. Uh, he had a underground TV show, like kind of like public access before many people even did that. He also recorded a lot of footage. So a lot of the footage that you see in the series is from him. And so you get to see like New York City, right? And this is the other thing that I loved about the series. You get to see New York City and it's like rawness. And I'm a native New Yorker. So I know what New York used to look like in the 80s. And it's probably going to end up looking like that again, like a really raw, funky dead people on the street, like chalk outlines, prostitutes, drugs, all that shit. The real greediness, like the New York that people are actually scared about. That's not the New York of like last year or 
two years ago or even 10 years ago, um, Mayor Giuliani came in and like sanitized it, brought Disney into Times Square, got rid of all the peep shows, all the prostitutions, arrested everybody that he could like really took like the, you know, I mean, I know this is a happy medium. Like I'm not saying that New York has to be like, so like stick them up, give me your fucking wallet every day. But like there's a, a medium in between that I can't really explain it that you don't want it too sanitized, but you don't want it too gritty. You just want something in between. And I don't think New York City has found that balance and I don't know if it ever will. So to see like Andy Warhol in the art scene during the 60s and the 70s and then the 80s, which is like, you know, my birth decade. And I kind of was like, damn, there was so much freedom when it came to the art world and so much like space for people to just be and create. And then what really like sucked me into the series and I know I'm going on and on about it, but I'm going to get to the point um, is when he connected with Jean-Michel Basquiat. And so everybody knows who Basquiat, we've heard the name, we've seen, we can identify his artwork, but it really showed who he was as a young man. He was so young. He died at 27, but his career started like 21, 22 and Andy Wall, who was a mentor. So we get to hear a lot of the behind the scenes of private conversations between the two of them, their interaction and how they fed off each other, how they collaborated, how their collaboration wasn't really received well because the art world always shitted on Andy Warhol. And now they just transfer their disdain of Andy Warhol onto Jean-Michel Basquiat being like, oh, he's like his puppet. You know, Jean, you know, Andy Warhol just found a little black boy puppet. And the racism was so clear. And I think we all need to get to the point now where we just have to call out the racism because whenever you talk to people of color and whenever we get slighted in a professional space, um, you know, like, why didn't you get that job? Oh, you know how it is. You know, like we, we take on the responsibility of dealing with the racism, but we need to start calling it out in that moment to that person in their face, you know, case in point last night at the critics choice awards, the director who won for her friend, let me, let me look her up. Cause I wasn't even really going to talk about this chick. Cause she, okay. So Jane champion is a New Zealand director. She won for her film year of the dog. She won for best director. She's from New Zealand. And during her speech unprovoked while she's at the critic choice award, she basically said to Serena, Serena and Venus, you know what? Let me just let me just play the quote because I don't want to mess this up. Now keep in mind, Venus and Serena were not up for the director of the year at the Critic Choice Awards. Jane Champion was the only woman who was nominated for director of the year at the Critic Choice Awards, and she won for the movie Year of the Dog, which is a time period film basically about a gay cowboy who's mad that he's gay. And takes it out on everybody and terrorizes his brother and his new wife. And the brother's wife has a teenage son who is probably also gay. Long story short, it's about a gay dude who's a cowboy, blah, blah, blah. And so it's getting heralded for all of this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sidebar again, I'm sorry, y'all. It's so interesting, all of these films that get all of this acclaim for telling the story of like closeted homosexual people. And at the time, those stories when they were originally written, because this is based on a, a, a story that was written a long time ago, it was like taboo to even have the subject even broached. 
But now it's 2022. So now we're actually in a space where we can make these movies. But it's like you you are applauding a story that was written years ago when these stories were not written and it was considered taboo, but it's not taboo anymore. So now you're honoring the adaptation of a dated piece of work that chronicles how hard it was for gay people to be gay, but it's still hard for gay people to be gay right now. Cause you have legislation that's trying to wipe them out and you can't say gay in Florida and a trans ban and all this other stuff. And we're not telling the stories now currently, like let's not romanticize and, um, you know, like wax poetic about like yesteryear and how hard, like it's hard right now. So tell the stories right now. Like let's not make it all glossy and fucking dusty and, you know, sepia tone it and make it seem like it's fucking artwork. Like the fight is happening right now. Like let's show the movies and tell, have the movies written by the people who are a part of these marginalized communities. Tell the stories right now, right now, like right now to make it real and drive it home because art definitely influences change in society i.e Andy Warhol and and Basquiat and we need to have the conversations now currently like use art now like Hollywood give people budgets to make the movies about the shit now instead of dusting off a book from the library and then so that's a whole time okay so anyway so she won for best director and this is what Miss Jane Champion is a champion or campion? Campion. Jane Campion had to say. Unprovoked. And, you know, Serena and Venus, you are such marbles. However, you do not play against the guys. <laughs> like I have to. <laughs> now, when you look at the clip... When you look at the clip, they pan to the audience, right? And Serena is clapping with her hands above her head, clapping. Venus is who they went to first. Venus is giving a bitch what face? Like, what are you saying? But with a smile, like, you know, she's smiling, being like, huh? What is happening here? Why? Now, you know, like NeNe Lee. Now, now, how did I get dragged into this? Now, what did I do? What did I say? How did I get into this? I hear you, girl. Because that's exactly what Venus Face said. Why did you even mention my name? We didn't direct uh, King Richard. When we talk about feminism, right? We also, when I say calling out racism, we also need to call out this, this fake idea of feminism. Because when people talk about feminism, they are not including black women. And Miss Jane Campion went up there and, and beat her nice white chest, claiming that she got a, you know, she got a role with the big dogs, unlike Venus and Serena, when that is not the case. That is not the case. Whenever they talk about tennis grace, they always try to minimize Serena because she is a woman. So whenever they have the conversation, they're always like, oh, Agassi or Sampras or all these other new Vidal or whoever. I don't even know who the new niggas are in motherfucking tennis. But they always try to minimize who all of, all of the amazing accomplishments that Venus and Serena have made because they're women and especially because they're black women. So they do go up against the guys when the conversation of who is the greatest tennis, tennis player alive happens. Because if you ask anybody, they'll be hard pressed to say Serena, especially if they're not a woman or a black woman or a black man. So what the fuck are you talking about, Jane? Why did you even put they, their names in your motherfucking mouth? And I was not even going to talk about this today because it's like we know what it is and we know how people are. So that happened last night. Of course, this morning, Jane issues 
an apology saying, you know, it, it was not my intention to minimize these two legendary black, you know, black women who have accomplished so much. And it's like, yeah, duh, bitch. But now your apology is an apology because you say what you said because you meant what you said and you felt that with your fucking chest. And now that you realize that it looks bad and that the rest of the award season is around the corner and you don't want to tarnish your chances, which probably won't, but you, now you're, now you're on this apology tour, but do you really understand what you're apologizing for? Cause I don't think you do. Right. And so like, even after she won her award, she went back into the audience, you know, the Critics' Choice Awards, everybody's sitting at like tables and eating dinner and stuff. And so there's a picture of her like hugging Venus. And it was like one of those like chokehold hugs, like, like accept my apology, like accept my presence in your presence and like make it seem like, you know, we all good, good, good. And Venus is like cringing. It's one of those things like, you know, in the color purple where um, Miss Sophia had to like be nice to the white lady who she can't stand because she knows if she don't, she probably won't go back to jail. Like that was kind of like the body language of Venus being like it's white bitch off of me but I can't say nothing and I want us to start saying something I want us to call somebody out in that moment if somebody says something specifically about you in your presence about who you are or minimizing who you are you need to call it out in that moment and there's a way in which you do it which is especially because if you're a black woman you don't want to come across as being angry so keep a smile on your face and say now what what did you mean by that what you just said up there like I didn't I didn't can you explain that and of course they probably won't be able to explain it they'll stumble and get a little you know self-conscious and be like oh well you know I mean you know it's just you know I'm a woman and I'm like yeah but I'm a woman too I'm a woman too so I have many obstacles to face as well as you so I don't understand why you felt the need to like be divisive that sounds so wild I thought we were all like in this together what happened to feminism sis I thought we were because you kind of made me feel like I was an other. And when you make other people feel like they're outside of the margins, that's oppression. Like, we really need to think about what we say, you know, and maybe not drink a glass of wine before we go up and receive an award. I don't know. I don't know if it was in your cup. I don't know if you're taking medications because, you know, they love to say I'm on pills and taking medication. Sidebar, speaking of pills, I had surgery which is why I was recovering and like not my usual self. I had surgery and I had pain medications and I go to the mailbox this week and I pull out like a package and I'm like, why am I getting like this? What is this package that says like drug prescriptions? Don't you know they out here trying to get you to destroy your pain pills? Like if you don't use your pain pills, they they send you like a little uh, baggie with charcoal mix in it. Tell you to put your pills in there, add some water, shake it up, seal it, throw it in the trash. That's how they trying to get rid of like, the opioid crisis. So they're like, listen, we know people is out here doing some strange things for Vicodin and Oxycodone. So here's a little pouch, destroy your pills, blah, 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 blah. Let me say something. I even really take them pills. I took like half a pill if I needed to. So I still have a lot of those pills left, but I found it interesting how they do all of that stuff to help you get rid of uh, these high dosage pain medications because they know that people are really strung out on them now. And, you know, they didn't give us that same grace when it came to people being addicted to crack and heroin. Okay. They wasn't doing no kind of outreach program for that. But, okay, you want me to destroy my pills and some charcoal? I guess. I guess. Okay. All right. So back to where I was. So when it comes to 
women like Jane who feel the need to make sure that they are head and shoulders above black women when they don't have to be um, because their art is better or their fight is harder. We got to call it out. We have to call it out. And when I was watching the Andy Warhol Diaries, everything I talk about on this episode is going to go back to the Andy Warhol Diaries. So if you, like I said, prepare to be sick of me. Okay. Prepare. Um, so one of the things that Andy Warhol did not do was he did not call out um, publicly when people were ostracizing him or minimizing his creativity as an artist. He just continued to do the work and it bothered him a lot. And, and, and he internalized it a lot um, because he was not necessarily a closeted gay man, but he wasn't out in the public eye. His friends knew, but it wasn't something that he ever really verbalized from his mouth. He had lovers, but the question of how much sex they were having is really up for debate. Publicly, he said, Andy Warhol said that he was asexual because that was like a rumor and he just went with it. And so there is something to learn about, like just rolling with the punches when people have preconceived notions about who you are. Like if they want to believe what they want to believe, then let them. And I think that in itself is cool. But I think when it comes to people questioning or judging you based on your skin color, your gender identity, all these things, if you have it in you, I would say address it publicly and call them out Um, or pull them to the side and be like, hey, don't say that shit like you. I don't know who the fuck you think you are, Jane, but you can't be talking about me like that. Like over here, we scrap, bitch. I'm from Compton. This is what I feel like Serena should say when Jane was like hugging her. Like, even when she was hugging her, I'd lean to her and be like, let me tell you something, bitch. I'm from Compton. And I don't know where the fuck you was pulling up their hoe because you tried it, bitch. I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay. So, Basquiat. Basquiat was in the same position as Venus and Serena last night. Where people from the art world felt like, Oh, he was just a black kid who's full of rage, who's going to draw black people on canvases. And it's not art. And what he's saying, he's written, writing words. And when you're different, when you are not made from the same mold as other people, that can be intimidating. Venus and Serena are intimidating. They wasn't even directing the movie, but they intimidate. Like the fact that Jane had to say something, it was sh- I'm telling you, that is intimidation. That is passive aggressiveness for her to even say some shit like that about them, unprovoked. But to you know, just to just to check them in a way for of the, just to show the hierarchy, and that happens to us a lot. And so when we see the footage of Jean-Michel and Andy Warhol collaborating together, which they did, except they have over 200 pieces that they did together. They did an exhibit. And of course, the reviews came out and they were like, Andy found him a magical Negro, basically just minimizing Jean-Michel. And that really fucked up Basquiat's mind. You know, he was doing drugs. He started doing drugs more heavily, et cetera, et cetera. Like it is a very good deep dive into um the ways in which we as people of color have to manage expectations, stand up for ourselves without being threatening, have value in ourselves because the world would tell us that we're not valued at all. And a lot of times it's hard for people to push past that. And so they end up succumbing to their fears and securities or addictions. And it just got me thinking of how many people of color, how many black people specifically, I'm only talking about black people right now, how many black people have had their lives cut short, their dreams deferred, 
because they tried to operate in a society that would never see them in the first place. And I know there's some people who seek the approval, like that seat at the table I was talking about earlier. And I know there's some people who just doing what they do and the table tries to find them. And then they try to, you know, contort themselves to fit in the chair, but the chair wasn't for them anyway. And so they end up crashing and burning because now they feel rejected at a, a seat that they wasn't really seeking in the first place. But of course, when the seat comes, it's like the Holy Grail is like, this might be the thing that catapults me to that next level. And so I think with social media now, everybody is like, I'm going to make my own seat. I'm going to make these videos. I'm going to steal this audio. I'm going to lip sync. I'm going to dance. I'm going to organize my closet. I'm going to vacuum my rug on camera. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get that motherfucking seat, to get that, to get that spotlight on me. And what we don't realize is that when you get the spotlight on you, whether you want it or not, you have to be mentally prepared for it. Jean-Michel was not mentally prepared. He was not supported in a way in which he could really navigate the space the way that he needed to navigate the space. It really is heartbreaking, but also it can help you understand why society and human beings are so are so predictable. And it's like now that you know what to look out for in any walk of life that you're in, the main thing, especially for black people, is learn how to protect yourself so that you don't fall for the okie doke, so that you don't drink the Kool-Aid, so that you don't succumb to expectations that are arbitrary because people just want to make excuses to make you feel like who you are already is not enough, that you're not special, that you're not doing it right, that you're, you know, we com- they compare you to another person that they came across once. And we have to stop falling for that. We have to stop falling for that. We have to stop looking over at other people's papers and seeing what they filling in on their test answers. Like be yourself, stay true to yourself. And whatever is meant for you will come to you. And the people that need to be attracted to you will be attracted to your work. The people that want to support your work will support your work. And and just grow it organically. And this goes for starting a business. This goes for, you know, starting a music career. Like whatever your goal is, it's like if your motivation is to be like, yeah, I'll show them. I'm going to get these people on my side. I'm going to be the one, you know, like Kanye, like Kanye's whole motivation is was revenge was just to justify being that awkward kid you know who his mama bigged him up and now he's like my mama said I'm amazing so I'm amazing and I'm gonna be I'm gonna show everybody and blah 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 and that's a place that's not a genuine place to come from which is why he's so tormented because since he's on since his path was the impetus was vengeance and I'll show you he really is saying, I need to show myself. And even when you show yourself, people like that will never be satisfied. And you will crash and burn. You will crash and burn. And so watching the Andy Wall Diaries really did a lot for me as a creative person. And it allowed me to really value my path, trust myself, work at my own pace, not compare myself to others and really find happiness and joy in who that I, and who I already am and, and who I'm going to continue to be and grow into. 
So I was moved, y'all. I was really moved. And I told everybody to watch it. And I know they may not like it or they may not understand, but that's what I took away from it. And, you know, it's fucked up because a lot of times when you are yourself, people don't appreciate it until you're gone. But the upside to that is you have created a legacy, a legacy that will influence the generations underneath you. And those people may be heralded and respected and adored in a way in which you weren't, but at least you've made somebody else's life a little bit better and a little bit easier. And so it's about what you want. Do you want everything for yourself or do you want to plant a seed and let that tree grow and flourish and shade and purify for generations to come? And sometimes I think it's better to be an inspiration, you know? Sometimes I think it's better to, it's more impactful to be an inspiration than it is for you to be all things. No one can be all things. You can't, I don't think you can be all things, not to the degree that you would actually be satisfied with. Something would always be lacking. Something would always be lacking. So yeah, I'm still pondering and learning and feeling all the feels and, but yeah, that's, that was my takeaway. Listen to it. I mean, not listen to it. Watch it. Let me know what you think if you enjoyed it. Um, and, and we can chat about it in the DMs. That's how I feel about it. All right. It is still March, which means it is Women's History Month, which means we have another installment of women that we are spotlighting this week on the Social Misfit Podcast. <laughs> All right, this week we are spotlighting Stage Coach Mary. That's right. You may remember that name because in The Harder We Fall or a fictionalized version of her character in The Harder We Fall. But the true woman, the true woman is even more amazing. Born Mary Fields in around 1832, Fields was born into slavery. And like many enslaved people, we don't really know her exact date of birth or where she was born. But after the Civil War, she traveled to the North where she moved in with nuns at a convent in Ohio. It's not clear how Fields discovered the Ursuline Convent of the Sacred Heart in Toledo, Ohio. But some accounts say that she accompanied the daughter of a white family to the convent. Others say she headed there with a family friend. The religious community, which still exists today, was serene and disciplined. There, Fields worked as a groundskeeper. Her gruff style and panache for cursing raised eyebrows in the quiet convent. When asked how her journey to Toledo was, she reportedly told one of the nuns that she was ready for a good cigar and a drink. (laughs) Mary did not care, y'all. Historical records show that the nuns complained about her volatile temper and her difficult nature. Now, if you a nun complaining about your black groundskeeper, who you complaining to, God? Because I know the nuns didn't have an HR department. So who was y'all complaining to? And I'm sure they were scared of her and they couldn't kick her out. So that's why Mary stayed at the convent, y'all. Because Mary was like, these old quiet bitches ain't telling me shit. According to historian D. Garceau Hagen, one nun remembered Phil's wrath when anyone disturbed her lovely kept ground, saying, God help anyone who walked on the lawn after Mary had cut it. That's me impersonating a nun because I know they speak with like soft tones. Fields also tussled with the nuns over her wages. 
behavior that would have shocked white women when expecting African-Americans to be well-behaved and subservient. Mary said, listen, tell your manager, God, I want my money. Okay, nuns? (laughs) Yes, Mary feels. She struggled to adjust to shelter life of the convent, but she did make a friend, Mother Adamus Dunn, the convent's superior mother. Yes, I'm reading this off of history.com. Dunn was called to missionary work by her bishop and headed to Montana, where she founded an Ursuline convent there in 1884. There she assisted Jesuit priests who were starting schools for the Blackfeet Native American nation. In 1885, Fields, Mary, got word that her beloved nun was gravely ill and she headed to Montana to help her. Mm -mm -mm, Always in servitude. All right, black woman. The West suited Fields, who nursed Dunn back to health and began working on her new convent near Cascade, Montana. But though she faithfully served the nuns in the harsh, sparsely populated community, news of her subversive behavior reached the bishop, who raised serious concerns about Fields' habits of drinking, smoking, shooting guns, and wearing men's clothing. Mary did not give a good goddamn, okay? When Fields in the that's Mary. We're talking about stagecoach Mary. When stagecoach Mary and the comments male janitor pointed guns at one another during an argument, it was the final straw. Y'all, do you see why we need a biopickle and stagecoach Mary? So Mary Fields, after being who she was, got kicked out of the convent and she was on her own. And she set about living life that was shocking by 19th century standards. She took in laundry and did odd jobs. She started businesses and became known for liking hard liquor and gunfights. Y'all, do you understand what gunfights were back then? Like all of this, like popping off at the mouth on Twitter and like writing in the comments. Like back then, if somebody had a problem, they would call you outside and you had to bring your shooter and one of y'all would walk away and the other one would be dead. And they would be like, whelp, like... Talk about population control. Talk about population control. Like imagine every time you had an argument with somebody, you took it to the motherfucking streets and y'all squared up with the pistols. Okay, I'm sorry. I just got excited. That's just so crazy to me, but it's like exciting at the same time. But also when we talk about violence, like America been been on violence. So when you hear stories like this and you watch cowboys and shit like that, they was really doing this stuff. They was really stringing people up, hanging them, chasing them down, all of that stuff. Turn any turn they uh, heads in for bounties. Like we talk about, like oh, crime is so. We've been about this crime life. Sorry, I'm on a tangent. The tough reputation ended up paying off. In 1895, Mary Fields got a contract from the Postal Service to become a star route carrier, an independent contractor who carried mail using a stagecoach donated by Mother Amadeus. It suited Mary to a T. As a star carrier, her job was to protect the mail on her route from thieves and bandits and to deliver mail. She was only the second woman in the United States and the first African-American woman to serve in that role. Do you know how hard it was to get your mail back then? You would have the people would travel across several states to drop off people's mail and people would rob them. Like now I know when you get a delivery at the door, people come and just steal your packages. But like, imagine this on like the plains of the Northern landscape of America, with just like no buildings, just all like dust bowls and like buffaloes and shit like that. Well, not a lot of buffaloes because white people killed most of the buffaloes trying to starve out the native American population. But you know what I'm saying? Stagecoach Mary 
or Black Mary, as she was nicknamed, carried a rifle and a revolver. She met trains with mail, then drove her stagecoach over rocky, rough roads and through snow and inclement weather. And though she intimidated would-be thieves with her height and her tough demeanor, she became beloved by locals who praised her generosity and her kindness to children. For eight years, Fields protected and delivered the mail. Eventually, age caught up with her and she retired. The community rallied to support her despite occasional dust-ups with neighbors. Locals restaurateurs gave her free meals. Saloon regulars chatted with her until bars became forbidden to women due to a town ordinance. My fucking haters. When she died on December 5th, 1914, her funeral was one of the largest the town had ever seen. Go ahead, Stagecoach Mary. And that is our woman spotlighted for this week's episode. All right, y'all, we did it. There's been another episode of Social Misfit with me, your host, Chloe Hilliard. I thank you and appreciate you for tuning in. And there's nothing else for me to do, but you know, you know what? Um, Tim, would you like to come up and say goodbye to the people? For what? <laughs>